Hello, you're listening to the NATO Sessions, Conversating in Podcastery. I'm NATO Green. This is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and its online venue, 3200 Stories. Today, uh, my guest is Boots Riley, and uh, I've been I've been thinking about Macklemore a lot lately, the hip-hop sensation uh, since the MTV VMA Awards. Um, I like Macklemore, but Macklemore very much feels to me like uh, what would happen if NPR invented a rapper. Uh, he, he went to Evergreen State College uh, where there's no grades. So, uh, you know, he really feels like like someone who's rapping developed in an environment where there was no grading or scoring or competition or uh, criticism. It was very nurturing. It's like, hey, man, if you want to do rapping, that's cool. We're going to be quilting over here. Uh, yeah, it's fine. You could rap about Malcolm Gladwell. That's a thing that people can do. Um, so, but uh, Macklemore... Uh, one of the things he's known for is doing this song, Same Love, uh, which is like his gay, pro-gay, gay rights anthem. And uh, some people were critical of him that a straight guy has been getting acclaim or profiting off of gay rights. I don't really see that. I you know, feel like uh, you know, every movement needs as many allies as it can get. And uh, we want as many straight people as possible to you know, come out for gay rights and all that kind of stuff. Uh, my problem with it is that I don't think it's that good of a song. It's not Malcolm Moore's best song. And just the fact that I agree with the agenda of the song uh, doesn't make the song good. And that, uh, I feel like, you know, music, it's great if, if music has a, an agenda or a message, but it's not enough that I agree with it. It's got to be good as the thing. Uh, you know, there was this, another example I always think of is is the rap group Dead Prez did this song, Mind Sex. Uh, it was sort of like their response to the just as Macklemore did same love partly to address the homophobia that he perceived in hip-hop dead prez did this song mind sex to address the misogyny they perceived in hip-hop and talked about not objectifying women but connecting with them intellectually and emotionally but the song was sort of mortifying like it was like you know the headlines you know let's sit on the futon and have a crouton and stuff like that and uh just you know it while i agree with the message of mind sex completely it it uh made me feel like I disagree with it because it was so earnest and, you know, sort of overwrought. On the other hand, you have Boots Riley, who uh, is my guest today on the NATO Sessions, and Boots is most known as part of the rap group The Coup from Oakland, uh, but he also has done some work under the name of Street Sweeper Social Club with guitarist Tom Morello, um, and uh the, the Boots has a message, he has an agenda that he's pretty clear about, uh, but at the same time, his music is funny and uh, uh, lyrical and poetic, and uh, there's a story to it in a lot of his songs, and it, it's funky and it rocks out. Boots rocks hard, uh, and I really appreciate that about him, that, um, you know, I don't, I'm, that, that I, can, I can jam to his music and get pumped up to his music, uh, yeah, and and uh, agreeing with it is sort of becomes uh, a secondary to how much I just enjoy the song. So, um, uh, I'm I interviewed Boots at his house in Oakland. Uh, some of the background noise you hear is the sound of Boots's children running around um, and talking, and there's a baby coming and going and talking, and uh, other people walking around. So you hear some of that in the background, uh, and we we got into it uh we had some deep political and artistic discussions uh so here it is me and boots riley on the nato sessions 
So we're here in the home of Boots Riley, uh, America's favorite revolutionary rapper. It looks exactly as you would expect, uh, basically like the cover of the Thelonious Monk album, Underground. Uh, there is an actual Nazi chained up in the corner, <laughs> just like on Thelonious Monk's record. Um, so, uh, as well as, you know, guitars and amps and uh, all the communist literature you need. Uh, some, some maps, maps and uh, things like that. Uh, thanks for making some time to chat with me. This has been a big week for you. Monday, you released this new music video of, of the Magic Clap from your album, Sorry to Bother You. Mm -hmm. uh, video, I would say, is the second best thing after actual revolution. Uh, <laughs> it would be revolution and then the new video. Can you describe the video and, and how it came about? Uh, well, let's see. A couple years ago, Patton Oswalt was just tweeting about how he was a fan of the coup and quoting lyrics and everybody started hitting me up saying look Patton Oswalt's tweeting about the coup and so I contacted him and uh, at first we were talking about the script that I wrote and he's involved in helping that get produced and uh, what happened is this this album that we have sorry to bother you is not getting the publicity we think it needs and uh, so I reached out to Patton and said, hey, let's make something happen quickly. And we started throwing around ideas back and forth of what we could do, some sort of thing. And uh, Pete Lee, the guy that actually directed it, came up with the, uh, the general idea that Patton should visually translate each word of, of the song. And so that's where the idea came from, and uh, and we, we we just got together at this in at, at at this place in L.A. and Patton came up with the funny, crazy uh, visualizations of each one. Like you have to like fit. So each word, not even just each word, but many times each syllable of each word is changed into a pantomime of something that that word sounds like so please don't actually uh use it as your translation for the lyrics but uh it's pretty good so and what's part of what's remarkable about watching it is that like Patton is is an amazing comic and i've been a fan of his for a long time and in, and but i'm so used to paying attention to his voice <laughs> and seeing it i was just blown away by by getting to appreciate how funny he is physically just like all these yeah. these very like little yeah. movements and faces yeah. and yeah even when he's just sitting there um, uh lip syncing to the chorus magic clap it's just you know what he's doing with his head is just like it's it's slight and it's really funny in it yeah so uh, uh, on a level that i i'm not enough of a comedian to understand but i just know it's funny right yeah i mean i was i would tell other comics that if we were just worried about doing the funniest thing all we would ever do is fall down because <laughs> nothing is ever funnier than physical comedy <laughs> uh, so the uh and and the video has has popped a little bit it's been on it's been on huffington post and funny or die and college humor yeah and it's getting getting some some juice yeah. and we're like up to 160 167 views and four days so that's, that's pretty good that's good for us yeah definitely for the coup it's fantastic in the fall of of 2011 uh occupy oakland's full swing the occupy general general assembly voted to authorize the general strike in oakland in november uh 
and uh, you got in touch with me and you said, uh, hey, we decided to do a general strike. And I said, sounds good, man. And then you were like, how do we talk to labor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it seemed to work out. Uh, I mean, the general strike was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Uh, what's your what's your reflection on that uh, on the, that experience? The, uh, the general strike. What are your highlights of the general strike? I the, still the, wake I still wake up chanting. Uh, the system is about to die. Hella hella occupy. Oakland has a uh, self esteem problem, right? Um, if you're a local band or a local artist, people are not feeling you not because they don't like your stuff or because they're jealous or whatever it's because you're only known locally and they're told that they're not shit so why should you so if you're on if they're the ones that like you then you're obviously not worth anything right. right and so um you know as soon as a band goes out somewhere else and they like you in la or they like you in new york or they like you somewhere else then it's like, hey, you know, there's something to this. There's something valuable because I'm not, and I want to be keyed into that thing that other people recognize as valuable. Now, when you're doing local organizing around Oakland, even when you come up on issues that people deal with that, that are important to them, they feel like they have no power to change it. It's something local and you're going to get maybe a couple hundred people involved and it's going to be you're going to go through the motions and everything's going to be the same and there's various versions of that analysis that happen and that's what you deal with when you try to get people involved in a local campaign um sometimes you key in on something that people can see the end result on and that's when you get a little bit more uh more more play on it now with the whole Occupy Wall Street movement, people had been seeing the idea, the fact that it existed in all of these other cities, Pri primarily New York. But the way the stories were showing it was that it was happening all over the place. So a lot of people who had never been involved in anything before you know, it, 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 so so you had a few levels of people. There were people that had never been involved in anything out that, that was the loose, even loosely defined as political organizing. You had radicals who had only been def been involved in various very spectacleish type things, such as picket lines that were, uh, you know, or demonstrations that were meant to call attention to something. And uh, then you had few people who had been involved in various other levels, and some of them, and, and, and a few of them were actual labor organizers, right? Um, but even those labor organizers had been only involved in sort of on-the-job things, nothing that went outside of their trade or whatever, for the most part. Um, so you had all these folks who normally are talking to people that don't think that they have any sort of power, but by connecting it to world events and having a name that connected it to world events, people felt like, wow, this is something that actually does have some play. Now we know why it was able to have that feeling was because of because a, a Marine, a, an ex-Marine got shot in the face and at the same time that there was 
media around and covering the story and at the same time as there was a movement in other places so all those things came together um and it made people feel like it was their thing you know made people feel and 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 the chaos of it all made people feel like it was their thing they didn't feel like there were these professional revolutionaries or professional labor organizers or whatever they felt like this was something they might they could be involved in just as anybody else because there's nobody that knows what the hell they're doing you know but they have a general idea and i think that made it seem more viable to people or more viable that they have a voice even me when i saw occupy uh wall street in new york i was kind of like what the fuck is this this doesn't fit into my uh this is this does not look like the textbooks of what how a revolution is supposed to build or how even a mass movement is supposed to build and it just seemed weird and hippie-ish and not like that you know some folks from the uh, longshoreman side of ilw that, that is the international longshore and warehouse union yeah uh which is the west coast dock workers union mostly uh and then over the years the ilw has ended up representing mostly warehouse workers related to Pacific shipping. So yeah, so a lot of them were at the meetings. A lot of the, a lot of the more known radical elements of that union were at the meetings. And then, but all of a sudden, a lot of the, I'd say, a lot of folks that were in that union that weren't known at the time for coming out to radical events and stuff like that started coming out, and they recognized that. So they said, "Hey, um, we can't vote on this before." this happens but everybody's down so here's a way that we can stop work on the ports yeah yeah on the ports which show which was a bit um there's a bit of a conflict there because the idea is to show that everybody's stopping work and not that there's a group of other people stopping other folks from working However, this was just the technical way to get around this at the time. And as a matter of fact, and that we decided to do the evening shift because we knew that everyone would be growing during the day and then there would be a certain number of people that wanted to be involved that were not going to strike and that in the evening there would be more people. However, something like 70% of the daytime shift of the ILW of the longshoremen struck on their own that day. So, um, the thing that's so interesting about, like, as a, you know, if you are someone, I mean, what, what you're describing reminds me a little bit of the, the, the parable of the bricklayer. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the idea, you know, three guys are laying bricks and, and somebody says, What are you doing? And the first guy says, I'm, I'm putting mortar on this brick. And the other guy says, I'm building a wall. And then the third guy says, I'm building a cathedral. Like, if you are a radical person, the day to day activities might be the same as someone who is not trying to totally transform the system mm-hmm. but it's sort of, sort of always this struggle about like how do I keep my keep focused on what the what the real goal is you know yeah. and you spend your whole life hoping that someday you'll do something where it's not just about that next campaign or that next issue but that suddenly there'll be a movement behind you yeah. and then what Occupy really showed me is like when the movement's behind us we're not ready for it anyway you know like suddenly things are happening and uh, you know like it's like Reddit, the, we we hadn't been planning well we have been we've been taught all sorts of dysfunctional ways of being a lot of the people that we look up to 
a lot of people in like my father's generation of revolutionaries and you know it, I would say that they're the ones that messed it up like <laughs> you know like that we want to recreate the 60s and the 60s totally decimated to me not totally but did a good job of decimating the radical aspects of working class movement mm -hmm. and not because they did it on their own but because they ran away from the working class and so there became this crazy um, dichotomy which w was put out there which was reform or revolution and that had that hadn't been a question before it, w it really is something that is a child that question is a child of the 60s for the most part before that you know the, what they're what they've transformed that from was the idea of reform and revolution in the 20s and 30s you had utah and montana and places like that which were called hotbeds of communist activity by uh and, and, and Alabama, places like that, which were hotbeds of communist activity, as so said by J. Edgar Hoover, we left all that alone and went for more spectacle. This more spectacle seemed more like, in, 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 it's just in a general way, I think, more spectacle seemed more like war, which was happening, which was the level that other revolutions were at at the time. And so we left all that alone and, you know, now the grandchildren of the communists in Montana are right-wing militia people, you know? They think actually a lot of the stuff they're saying is very similar to what was being said back then. But they've been corralled by a different group of folks. So we have a lot of, a lot of tendencies that are informed by what was there in the time between, uh, starting with the 60s to now and the left has mainly hid in academia. And because of that, we prioritize the wrong things when we're trying to figure out what to do or who to unite with or how to move forward. We get stuck on everything from, you know, um, exactly how things will be organized after the revolution to words and usages of words will split up whole organizations right yeah i mean it's also it's very tempting it's like why you know of course you would it, 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 it's of course it can be seductive to want to just write a paper rather than spending months knocking on doors in a working class neighborhood mm -hmm. definitely sounds better to me and i kind of do that right and so but what, what happened is is that we all have faults and we all have contradictions but a lot of people refuse to see their contradictions as contradictions and demanded that the Occupy movement act in the way that other radical organizations had been acting for the last 30 to 40 years and to a certain extent that's what happened and that's what's happening now and that's why nobody knows that the Occupy movement exists and just to can you give a sense of like you were part of these there were some of these giant general assembly meetings with hundreds of people where there would be thousands the first first one after we got back was a three th the one where we voted on having the general strike 
was 3,000 people. And what was that like to be trying to have functional participatory democracy with 3,000 people? I actually worked a lot because of some of these things, some of the uh, non-horizontal ideas of how to organize things. It was really smooth. Smoother than 12 people meetings that I've been at, right? Obviously, there wasn't a lot of time for long discussion and debate. But for that, you know, like we broke up into groups and groups of those groups and had discussions and um, and and there was sort of a and, and, and came to decisions quickly. And I think actually that's part of how decisions are come to quickly is that you have something that's relevant, that's on the table that will make a difference right here and now. When you're arguing about what the line should be um, in terms of whether World War III is coming in 20 years or not, you're going to have that argument for 50 years. (laughs) Um, I visited this, years ago I visited this Christian communist uh, town. and Believe it or not, it exists. It's called the, the Bruderhof in upstate New York and they decide everything by consensus and it's, it's sort of a strange thing they're, they're the folks that they have a printing press and they make all their money from building the hospital furniture and stuff and they have towns in South America and but they're Christian communists so at the same time as they're against abortion they're actually harder against the death penalty right so Anyway, it's, it's sort of weird. But the idea is that they have a f- whole town which in which all decisions are made by consensus. And I'm like, and I was like, how long do those meetings last? Are those a month long meeting? You know, and, you know, they were just like, look, when you're voting on whether when you're trying to decide whether or not someone needs a new roof, it's your your way of thinking about things is much different than if you're deciding on something that is not as relevant to what's happening right now. So, um, Why, within Oakland, sort of why was Oakland such a, such a fertile place for Occupy to, to pop off? Like, what were the precursors locally? Well, in other places, radicals stayed away from Occupy. They, did, they did, had the same, uh, many times people had the same reaction as I did, which was, oh, this is some hippie shit. You know, there are people here saying they don't know what the answer is. I'm not being part of this. And, and radicals here had the ideas like, here's people that we need to be working with. You know, a lot of my arguments with other radicals that didn't get involved was them saying, you got people that are putting in there that are putting out the wrong line. I'm like, yes, that's good because they still want to work with us and put out the wrong line. Mm -hmm. It's much better than having five people that are putting out the right line that nobody wants to work with. Right. And um, so I think the big difference was radicals got involved and saw it as a way to create a mass movement. And that's basically what happened. So all the dreaded anarchists that were involved kind of pushed things for and one thing that I learned from it is that you know um, 
some of some of my ideas about how a movement has to be built and were really before that very much written in stone so anything that didn't look like that I didn't want to be involved in I didn't I thought it was a dead end so on on the one hand there are some anarchists that have this idea that I disagree with in general which is kind of like this is a new thing we're at a new place you know we got to look at things much differently I, I I see that being applied in a way sometimes where it means they don't have to they don't have to look at things critically but the way that it worked is that people were willing to do something that looked different and many you know communists would not do that because we we hold up this sacred history of what happened and what 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 happened in the last hundred years and we talk about the mistakes and we don't only talk about the mistakes and victories that folks made but we look at them as almost um, as almost prophecy for how it has to happen this next time and and, uh, and, and we'll argue with each other based on where are we in relationship to what happened in this history something that happened in another country a hundred years ago yeah and so the, the freeing from that allowed a lot of things to work that normally wouldn't you have been pretty publicly critical of the black block approach yeah not in in not in general in in specific instances but yes so uh you know i i mean i was constantly getting in arguments with people when people would say about how people use the word violence and i was always like property destruction you know the only violence against humans was from the police Mm-hmm. There was property destruction. You yeah. know what I mean. And people were like, yeah. "No, no, no! What if your car window got smashed?" I'd be like, "Well, I'd be upset, but yeah. my car is not a person." We're gonna take a quick break and be back with more Boots Riley on the NATO sessions. Really excited by the idea of being the movement of the 99%. We are for the 99%. That's inspiring, isn't it? It's also a lie. Uh, because I want to be for the 99%, but I don't know if you realize this, that's a lot of people. Some of you are a step ahead of me. Including a lot of assholes. Uh, and most of us, given the opportunity, would be able to say, would want to be able to say, like, I'm for the 99% asterisk, except some people. And then we all have our own list, you know what I mean? So, like, for me, it's like, I want to be able to be for the 99%, except for human resources, and the yoga people, and Jessica from high school, because she broke my heart. The movement doesn't have demands, uh, that's fine. It doesn't have leaders, that's fine. I would like to request, uh, an uh, occupation concierge. Just someone who can be like, welcome to the occupation. If you want to get tear gas, stand over here. Uh, we'll be composting lentils over here. At the drum circle, teaching about fracking. Here's your coupon. You know what I mean? Like that? I love that. Just some hot basic hospitality. 
the Chronicle was sort of whipping up this frenzy about, about poop, specifically. They were very fixated on poop. It's like, there are people pooping in the camps. There's poop around. Uh, and clearly the Chronicle editorial staff is not able to afford to go out and about in the city anymore. <laughs> to see that there are people pooping everywhere. It typically is not an occasion for the deployment of 500 riot police. In most parts of San Francisco, you don't see, get him! The tenderloin would have been nuked. Uh, it's just not, it's not a city priority. And then this debate has been raging in the movement about what to do about violence, right? And there's some people who are like, don't break stuff. And other people are like, break a lot of stuff. And then a lot of people are sort of in the middle. And people kind of like, a lot of, it depends on a lot of things. And a lot of folks would just like to be able to have the option of like going up to a store with a brick and be like, hey, is this locally owned or part of a chain? <laughs> I'm trying to decide, and I need more information. I'm going to need inspector payroll records to verify that everyone is paid a living wage. Do you racially profile your customers? Do you use ecologically sound cleaning products? No? Yes? Okay. Hello! My problem with the black block in certain instances is instances in which you're trying to organize a community what black bloc calls for meaning violence against property means that you have to mask yourself and right now we're at a place where we need to be knowing people we need people to feel like people i know are radical you know and they're not afraid Right, right, right. If, if you if you have a million people ready to set a car on fire, set a car on fire. If you have twenty people ready to set a car on fire, maybe wait till you get a million people. Yeah, or whatever. So you know. Yeah. So and 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 so I my disagreement with it is a tactical agreement, a disagreement with it at this time. Um, also, just scientifically, as it went on, it was pretty obvious that it was causing problems with the community we were trying to organize and by that I don't mean just the conservative folks in the community but people that rightly or wrongly looked at certain things as theirs you know looked at certain things as their commons a bar that you hang out at all the time if the window gets smashed people are like that's my fucking bar right <laughs> you know so we can argue that they shouldn't look at it that way but People, you know, and so I don't want to go. There were definitely a few instances. So I talked about that, that, you know, we we need to use tactics that actually uh, work. At work at building the movement and uniting people. Yeah. Um, so there's a mainstream narrative that Occupy has failed and done. And I'm guessing you disagree with that. The failed part, I definitely disagree with. The done part remains to be seen. I think that there definitely have been, that there are, uh, that everybody that was doing stuff in Occupy is doing 
a lot of most of them are doing the same things. They're just not wanting to call themselves Occupy, not because they don't want to be associated with the name, but because of sectarian squabbles. They don't want to be associated with other people that are using the word, the term Occupy. Right. And the thing is, that was the thing that people had going for them. And I guess what's frustrating to me is that, you know, and this is a personal frustration is that people don't see, um, people don't see that what they have to do is unite with people that they don't agree with. They see building a movement, building a revolutionary movement as getting together with the folks that you agree with and moving slowly, little by little. I, I used to be involved in this revolutionary organization um, in the 80s when I was a teenager and our meetings would be very particular. It would be about the person we talked to this week about communist ideas and how close they were to agreeing with us and what the strategy should be for talking to that person the next time. And what are some things we could bring up and maybe I'll, we'll invite them to a movie or, you know, I'm talking about a slow moving building movement. By the time you get that person involved, three other people have left, right? Or, or, or died of natural causes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a lot of things are working in that way. So the question is, how do we do that on a mass level? Hey, I'm talking to this whole town of Oakland. These are the disagreements they have with me. How do I get them involved? What is the point of conversation that we can have? What's something I could get involved in? Maybe I can't take the, the whole town of Oakland to the movie. Maybe I have to take them to be involved in a labor struggle that they, you know, <laughs> we should be thinking about things like that. Yeah. But instead, we see the town of Oakland or the people that don't agree with us as enemies what's your what's your sort of perspective on on the role of music and changing the culture and creating better conditions for movements to exist well you know it's kind of like you know it's, it's the model that the media has which is you know they put out these ideas you you see for instance a lot of people listening to this podcast have never been to oakland they have an idea and they have a picture in their head of what Oakland is. It may be in black and white, it may be in color, but they have a picture of what it looks like. They have a picture of what Lower Bottoms is like, the neighborhood that I live in. Many of them may never have even been here. And that some of that is through word of mouth stories. A lot of that is through the news and through maybe through other music and through other and 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 through other media. You know, you have a picture of for instance, I've never been to Delhi. I have a picture in my head of what Delhi is like. It's probably full of shit and based on a James Bond movie I've seen or something like that, right? So I'm trying to put pictures in people's heads of a world with an analysis that says we can change it. And, and that makes the ground fertile for organizing to happen but what has to happen beyond that is there has to be something within someone's grasp that they can organize around something that that they're going to actually 
be involved in something that's not extracurricular. They work every day, all day, struggling against the system. The thing they're going to be involved in most likely is not going to be a WTO demonstration in Montreal. Probably most likely going to be involved in something that has to do with them struggling to get more money. And some and and hopefully the organizers of that struggle are going to be radical enough to make the connection that one, you can't accomplish much by yourself. And two, we have to move beyond even this struggle. So yeah, I, I hope to make the ground more fertile for organizers. Yeah, I, I, as I was getting ready to come, to come over here, I was, I was thinking about, like, about myself and that there's something that I can't put my finger on about why music is important. You know, like music played a big part of the development of my politics. And it's not, it's not me- mechanistic in the sense that like if you play a coup album for some dyed-in-the-wool right-winger, you know, Tea Party person, it's not like they're going to come out the next day, mm-hmm. you know, down for the cause. But yeah. like I was, I was open to it as a teenager and was hearing Dead Kennedys and MDC and this sort of politically-minded punk rock and the Bad Brains. And it sort of, it... I don't know how to say it. Like it, it gave me a taste for something, or maybe curious or skeptical about the world. I mean, I don't know, but it it really helped anchor when I then started studying the history or participating in things. Like that kind of created the it was like the primer on the wall. You know, yeah. uh, are you you better at articulating what it is that I'm talking about than I am? Yeah, I I, I think that uh, no, I don't know if I'm better at articulating it, but I think. We're, you know, um, on the one hand, we're talking about the cart before the horse because you can create this culture and the material situation you're in, meaning is there a movement or isn't there? And there is a movement. It's not always radical or progressive. If that movement is to the right, you're going to listen to Rage Against the Machine and grow up to run for run as the Republican vice presidential candidate. Um, you can listen to Rage Against the Machine and, you know, something else happen, there's, happens and you're, you're, you're open to it. So culture is actually is created by material conditions. So w- what, what we're trying to do, I guess, with culture is to create a space as if those material conditions exist. A lot of my um, music i think early on was me talking as if there was a revolutionary movement that existed that i knew did not exist and it's kind of like uh maybe hopefully giving people the hope of what it would feel like if this movement did exist i think that 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 kind of did it. i i i think i i have you you mentioned some some uh groups some of them that I know, like I know Jello and stuff, and he's a very cynical person. Um, I talk about rage. You can, so Zach, he's very cynical and angry in his music, and those are the things that I think don't work. <laughs> you know, I don't think that those. I mean, uh, that's the approach that I take in my music. I don't think that those work for getting people hyped to organize. It works for getting people to be angry at the system, which is much different than thinking that you have the power to actually do something is that is that why there's so much humor in your music yeah well also the the humor comes from 
me in my daily life. The idea that I came up, I, I, I early on knew some organizers who, that's, that's how they talked about ideas, right? They talk, you know, I think that, and, and that's natural because what we're talking about when we're talking about exposing the capitalist system is we're talking about exposing the idea that the main that there's a main conflict under capitalism which is that there's a ruling class that exploits the working class and that that economic exploitation is the main contradiction so we're talking about when we talk about analysis we're talking about contradiction contradiction is a lot like irony irony is definitely a good way to have humor and um so i think a lot of times when as i was getting into the revolutionary politic a lot of the ways that i would really get something would be through conversation when someone said something that was funny about whatever situation we were in because that would if they were honest about if, if, if they were letting themselves be themselves that joke would somehow hinge upon some major contradiction in whatever situation we were in, right? So yeah, so that that's just how I came up talking about politics is through those through jokes, you know, that the, the regular jokes that people tell, but just talking about other areas that people don't necessarily always talk about them. And what you were saying about about sort of using your music to try to paint pictures for people. Uh, you know, when I when I listen to your lyrics, I'm struck by this by you know that there's a level of storytelling and specificity about place and context and conditions. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of like your lyrics remind me more of Nick Cave than Gunplay. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, I don't know Gunplay. Is like a Rick Ross type okay. rapper. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, in this um, so like just in in terms of in terms of these, they're you know they're they're uh, literary in mm-hmm. that sense. And I'm, I'm sort of curious about how you collect and filter and organize those images and details to, or to bank them, you know, for yeah. when they come out in, in your songs. Well, I used to just, I used to have a stupid idea because I know that it didn't work. <laughs> and it was just like, if, if I think of a lyric or something and, you know, I'm not going to write it down because if it's good enough, I'll remember it later. And I've had so many great, you know, ideas that I've been trying to remember for years. <laughs> and, you know, so, but early on, I probably had less to think about, which, you know, I have four kids now. I have, there's all sorts of struggles in my lo- personal life. And so to remember, you know, if I went by that, I'd probably forget a lot of, a lot more stuff. So, yeah, that was, I, I, see something and you know I'd see like you know a greasy stove top and I'd be like wow okay that could be a good description for this or that happening and I'd remember that um, but now I might write that down greasy stove top or whatever uh, you know and it'll spark ideas and so yeah that's that would be my process for it and it would kind of and then I'd look at the then I'd look at the ideas and kind of see if it's 
painting a different picture, taking things out of these different contexts and putting them in a different, in, in a new one. Uh, it's, it's similar to how a lot of a lot of comics work on jokes. Like it was really you'll marinate on something. Like you know, I'll try something on stage, it won't work, and then sometimes a year later I'll come back and try it again and be like, oh, that's what was the you know or whatever yeah. the thing. Or they'll, I'll try something and it won't work, and then I'll realize that there was some detail from some other joke that I wrote years before that wasn't working. We're like, oh, this belongs over here now. You know, yeah. it sounds like it's a similar yeah. kind of process. Definitely, um, but I'm also trying to write differently. You know, just one to keep myself interested, and um, well, I guess mainly to keep myself interested, which I think is the main thing. Um, with music is you you have to feel like the person really feels what they're doing um, sometimes like for instance if I write a verse for somebody's album um, they get me in the studio and I know exactly what they want from me I know you know what got me famous was a certain well what got people respecting me lyric wise other uh, rappers was a, a certain you know use of simile and and that descriptive sort of thing so I can do that I like okay cool give me a couple hours play the beat and I'll make that it's not something that you know it'll be something that afterward I'm like oh this is cool but it's not something that really gets me because I know how to hit all those triggers but I won't feel it I, I know how to hit other people's triggers but I'm trying to hit my own triggers right now and um, the things that inspire me that the things that I'm interested in are like more literary poets and things like that and, and like who well not necessarily poets but michael undachi he's a poet but i like his poems and his uh novels um salman rushdie gabriel garcia marquez folks like that um and i think like the descriptive thing is really that's that's the entry level literary um, style or whatever. And, I, and I've learned a lot from reading those writers that I've mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I think so, for instance, on this album, um, the song My Murder, My Love is really like my version of Anandachi, um, of something that I, Michael Andachi might write. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's just a, a different use of words and um, something to keep myself feeling, you know, feeling good about the art that I'm making. Yeah, you. I mean, you. You seem to be clear that there's a distinction between sort of that 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 you are a what you said at the beginning that you're a an artist with a political agenda, but that your art is has to be art. It has to stand as art. It can't. It can't just be propaganda. Definitely. I mean. I mean, and it's not that it's separate from that. It's just that, you, you know, you have to, it, it has to stick, because it, it, it can be both. I mean, you're, I have, the fact that I'm making music and I'm going to be putting my ideas into it, that is propaganda in and of itself, because whoever you are, you're putting out your views and your ideas. So I have, if I accept that, and then I don't have to worry about making sure that this line gets out or that line gets out or whatever. And it comes across, when, when I understand that although, um, you know, although 
Steven Spielberg makes good movies he doesn't necessarily have to try to put out a capitalist line <laughs> when he when he put makes his historical epics it's just going to come out because that's what him and his writers believe right right and it's propaganda to to one of the highest extents you know every death is an abrupt one every cop is a corrupt one without no cash up in a trust fund every cat with a gap want a bus one every guest want a plus one every tenement's a penitent every tribe man is innocent time served should be the six spent everybody want to hit a lick every one of y'all is getting pimped every time i spit i'm finna rip every cancer is a homicide every boss better run and hide every human is some kind of black every visa got a pin to crack every verse is from the cardiac every search is involuntary every inmate want commissary every bank note is promissory every broke motherfucker finna form a gang and when we come we're taking everything everybody throw your lights up tell me y'all finna fight a war everybody get the shit started this is your motherfucking party in the development of your politics, was there some moment where you sort of felt like, like sometimes you start down the down that road, and then there's some the first victory or the first connection with an, with another comrade type person, or sort of the, where you get the taste of like, oh, this is really exciting. You know, what was the first? moment where you're like oh this isn't just theory this is like this is really this could be really beautiful you're talking about in relationship to the music no just for yourself as a kid like wh wh where was the point where you were like i can really sink my teeth into this uh let's see um there were a couple one was i was part of a summer project for a few summers in a row when i was a teenager in uh mcfarland in delano california and it was organ helping to organize the Anti-Racist Farm Workers Union, which was started by folks who had been kicked out of the UFW in the late 60s for being communists. And they were, this, this guy Camacho, I don't know what his first name is, but was the leader of it. And he was supposedly um, uh, Chavez's right-hand man, but was the radical and was had to be kicked out. And he started this farm workers union and there would be, and they needed help. So um, people would come from around the country and we'd live with families of farm workers. And while they were at work, we'd organize the banners and get the flyers together and uh, drive the cars for the caravan and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, like, even though I didn't speak spe until a few Summers later, I could speak Spanish, but at first I couldn't speak Spanish, but you'd see all these farm workers coming together, meeting like right after work or whatever, and just intensely talking about stuff and that and arguing and involved in something that was changing their life right then. I mean, the police were coming and visiting people at houses and beating them up in their homes. And all of this was like, wow, this is going down right now, you know? And then they, you'd wake up in the morning and they'd be like, okay, it's your turn to organize the rally that's gonna happen at lunchtime. You know, like, I don't know how to organize a rally. Well, here's the flyer on how to do it. Here's everybody's phone numbers, make it happen. And I, you just felt like things were happening. Um, and it was the whole town, you know, small towns. McFarland was like 
it w- w- was maybe like a couple thousand people big in Delano. I don't remember. I'm sure that was like 20,000 people or something. And there was something happening, something going on. And I, I felt like, oh, I could see this happening in every little town all over the country. You know, wow, okay, that's all we do is we just duplicate this. And so that was, you know, the same. That was when I saw it working. Then right coming from there, in between one of those summer projects, me and some friends tried to apply that to Oakland High. And we did a a walkout at Oakland High um, against year-round schools, which at the time, Skyline was a mainly white school and every other school in Oakland was going to, besides Skyline, was going to have to have year-round schools in which it was cheaper and you get tracked as soon as you come in, you know, and sharing books and all this sort of stuff, whatever. And it was part of the cutbacks. And, you know, we put out a call for for uh, a walkout. Three days later, 2,000 of the 2,200 kids walked out of school and marched down to the school board. We got there and they basically threw up their hands and said, okay, we're not gonna do this. So, we, you know, there are a few of us drunk on, well, revolutionary power at the time, you know? So it felt like, okay, I don't understand why, what, what's been, st- why hasn't there been a revolution already? What's going on here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's some way that, like, to, in order to sustain those kind of politics, like, you need to you need to have something that gives you completely unrealistic expectations early in life. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you just hold on to that for that, like yeah. that, you know, forever. Um, so uh, I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. In March, you did a show in San Francisco called Shadowbox. Yeah. And I've never seen a concert put together like that. Usually you go to a show and there's an opening act and then maybe another band and then you're the band that you mainly wanted to see. And the way that you did it was you had all these other artists integrated into the coup performance. Yeah. And there'd be somebody in the balcony and the lights would go to them and they'd play horns. And then there'd be somebody standing on a table over here and the lights would go to them and they'd play guitar. Uh, and there was art decorated, you know, yeah. the whole space. And it was just, it was awesome. So, uh, yeah. What? Well, um, let's see. I don't know where it started, but um, part of it probably should be credit to thinking in, in, in thinking of the shows differently to uh, hanging out with Japanther. Um, the Japanther is this duo, and we toured with them. And they do a lot of, like, art house things. And so they're always thinking of, new ways to do shows or whatever and I was like wow you know um and 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 well but before that before hanging out with them we were looking at different ways of taking the show to another level making it visual and theatrical and but I was always thinking of it as here's the stage and we got to figure out how we can make the stage look more theatrical and stuff and I think the idea of seeing stuff done with installation art, um, which I'd seen Japanther do, uh, was that I, you know, gave me the idea that it doesn't have to just, you know, be on this, the performance doesn't have to be on the stage. The performance can be all around everyone. And uh, the experience, the, the show doesn't have to start just when the music starts. 
so I, I hooked up with a, a guy I'd known for a while, John Paul Bale. John Paul Bale was uh, is a street artist, and he's like he's probably the first person I knew doing combining art and organizing. I met him when I was in high school, and he uh, and w one of the people in the organization I was in was a teacher in Alameda, and so he introduced me to this guy who was putting. Um, who was going up to police cars and putting Nazi symbols over the actual police insignia. And so you'd see these police cars driving around. So he did, did this while they were like, it, w it wasn't in the lot, it was somehow he did it while they were out and about. And you'd see these cars, these police cars going around with Nazi, Nazi symbols over the, uh, pol over the police insignias. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. And he had him and a whole bunch of students from uh, CCAC at the time. They had this thing, and, which he doesn't, he doesn't remember this, but this is what I remember, uh, that they would always put no art for art's sake all over. And it was part of, I guess, a discussion that they were having at school. And so they were, they were wheat pasting and putting up posters and, uh, and you know, like really inspired me because at the same time I was in an organization that was like really stuck culturally like the idea that you couldn't use capitalist culture to affect any sort of revolutionary ideology and so luckily I didn't get stuck at that and John Paul is part of the reason why and um, so we would go up and put up these anti-Nazi posters and it was a group of us, some of us were organizers, some of us were students later at San Francisco. Was this by San? I don't know. It was like in between San Francisco State and that. But we went and we would poster up these anti Nazi things because at the time the, uh, the Nazi skinheads and the Aryan nation had said they were going to reclaim the Bay Area and bring it back to its former white glory. And uh, <laughs> before its previous indigenous glory, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, so they were doing stuff like they had the Aryan Woodstock in Napa, where all the white supremacist bands got together, and then, then they had uh, they actually had uniform neo Nazis in Union Square, and so a group of artists and organizers and stuff. We went and we. Uh, went up and, and beat them down up in Napa and then beat beat them down in Union Square and all this kind of stuff was happening. So that was like really affirming of the idea that art and organizing could work together. Um, but so I reached out to John Paul and said, hey, do you, and John Paul is the guy who's famous for doing the, well, well he's the guy that was doing the Hella Occupy posters. Mm -hmm. and, oh, yeah. And uh, he just like, gives them out for free all over the place and uh so i reached out to him and said hey you know let's have it be you know you know you decorate the space and make it be an experience once you get in and then you know i had the idea of putting all these things around around people so that you come in and have have a you know, a three-dimensional experience. And we're going to build on that. We have some more stuff happening, some more theatrical things going that'll be going on in the next one. It'll be pretty interesting. Sweet. Uh, okay, last question. 
Obama. Go ahead. <laughs> Told you. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because you know, for instance, this Oakland City Council is full of ex-revolutionaries. Teachers are, a lot of them are ex-revolutionaries. A lot of people in elected office all over the place are ex-revolutionaries. And many of them, the reason that they're ex is because they've decided that nobody else is a revolutionary. And at the same time, Occupy proved that technically, while a lot of people may not be calling themselves a revolutionary, that they agree with that idea that with ideas that are revolutionary and at the same time people voted for Obama because they thought he was the furthest away from what had been in existence before people want a revolutionary change without revolution we all do but we're not going to get it and um, it's time for all the ex-revolutionaries and the current revolutionaries and the people that don't know what the fuck I'm talking about to get together and um, and work on building a movement that changes the system and disagree but pick some campaigns that we can get done and, and, and we have to do them through being able to stop profits and that's what it's going to take cool well, thank you so much, Boots. This has been the NATO Sessions, a production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and 3200 Stories. That was my interview with Boots Riley. The NATO Sessions is produced by Dan Wolf, theme music by DJ Reel, uh, interstitial music by The Coup. You can see me doing comedy every Wednesday at the Dark Room Theater at the comedy show The Business or follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. Thanks a lot, everybody.